RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Pro Athlete Supplementation. Check them out at pas-nutrition.co.uk for all your supplementation needs. And don't forget that subscribers to the Rugby Renegade program get a 40% discount on retail prices. Yes, welcome back to episode 55 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jamie Bain and today I interview Mladen Jovanovic of Complementary Training. Uh, Mladen's a great guy. I've followed him for, for many years. Uh, he's put a lot of stuff... Uh, really good information out on his blog complimentary training um, and we go into depth into his agile periodization um, strength training and exercise selection and how he programs uh, running conditioning for sports uh, and he's got tons of experience in football uh, Aussie rules and, and other sports uh, and he's currently doing a PhD so he's a very intelligent guy so I'm sure you get tons out of it so give us a listen and let us know what you think Hi Mladen, welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast great to have you on why don't we start by you just telling us a little bit about your background how you got into strength and conditioning and some of the teams and athletes you work with Hi Jamie, thanks for having me um, yeah, in, in short uh, in short um, I'm based in Belgrade, so I finished the Faculty of Sports here in Belgrade, and now I'm pursuing the PhD at the same faculty. Uh, but around 2007, I started my first uh, professional gig was in soccer, local soccer club playing uh, second division, uh, FC Rad. Uh, that was my, I think, in my fourth fourth year of faculty, or when I <clears throat> was about to graduate. So uh, it was pretty. Let's let's call it like a really scary experience uh, because I never never actually worked in a professional uh, club, and I was lucky enough to be recommended by a, a friend of mine uh, for a, a head SNC position. And imagine how it is for a for a student to to just immediately start working in a in a professional club with a renome. Um, so it was pretty scary, but um, I survived. So um, yeah, that was my first experience as a SNC coach. Um, it was um, um, one, I would say, very, as I mentioned before, um, very, I would say, hard experience, but also very educational experience in, in terms of uh, you know surviving with uh, zero equipment. Uh, and and you know all the stuff that comes with working in a in a professional soccer. So it was like a wake up call, <laughs> like a very very hard wake up call. But it took me a few years to you know pick up some some info from from my experiences and the uh, universities and and textbooks and so forth. So you know it, hard lessons, but. Um, uh, I, I guess I, I learned some of them. Uh, so anyway, after, after that, I was, you know, back and forth to that same club for over multiple times or multiple years. But um, uh, most recent, most recent experience were, uh, and mo- most meaningful uh, were, I was a head SNC in Hammarby in Stockholm, Sweden, for two seasons. After which I, I move on to Doha to work as a football physiologist at Aspire Academy, and afterwards I was 
with uh, Port Adelaide Football Club in Adelaide in Australia with Australian rules. Um, uh, and um, yeah, after that, I was I was back to Serbia for I think this is my third or fourth year here. I started PhD and uh, you know started a business trying to consult and uh, build coaching tools and so forth. That's cool, and yeah, I, I can attest. Um, you know, your website's uh, a real a real good source of information for myself over the years. Um, and uh, having looked through and, and read some of your work over over the years, um, you talk a lot a lot about periodization, and you've got this. Um, I believe it's agile periodization. You call it. Could you sort of tell us your approach to periodization, please? So, agile is something that I kind of stumbled. Um, and it made sense. So I was reading some stuff on the actually the agile project management in IT, and they were questioning the the contemporary practices called the contemporary project management practices, most mostly referred as a, a, a waterfall practices. So everything is planned uh, ahead. All the phases are planned ahead, and then you just follow up the practices. But what they've been showing is that these type of planning seems to be working in, in certain domains that are less uh, complex compared to uh, a software industry where the market shifts very quickly, uh, the demands shift very quickly, technology moves very quickly. So they show that this type of planning, the contemporary water, waterfall planning was uh, not really up to the task. So they kind of designed something that's done in a shorter iterations um, with a more frequent testing, um, with less assumptions and so forth, and I immediately saw a potential transfer to planning domain. So I, I was reading more about it, and I saw uh, the certain fit. Um, so one of the major, I would say, standpoint from the agile perspective is that is that we are dealing with uh, you know a complex domain and love it or not. Love it or hate it, we are always experimenting with the athletes. So even if you know the best practices, even if you know the evidence-based uh, research and so forth, once we apply the interventions, we are always experimenting. And from the agile periodization perspective, it's a little bit, you know, complex topic that 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 has multiple uh, components. But uh, the the major one is approaching planning from a, a uncertainty perspective and using simple heuristics that you know can help us protect from the downside in, in a way of, you know, uh, making sure that we don't make major mistakes and also reaping the benefits of the upside. So uh, that's, the, that's the major um, uh, major stance of the agile periodization. But, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty much the forest of some of the ideas underneath it. And I'm still trying to kind of get my head around it and trying to develop uh, a, a practice that could be useful and understandable to coaches. Yeah, that, no, that's really interesting, and uh, I like where you're taking from from other industries, and and that's affecting your thinking. Is a, a lot of the time we just look in at what's already there within our within our realm, and like I say, you can learn a lot from other things. And you you touched on testing. That's something I wanted to, to ask you. What's your philosophy on testing? Um, I've gone away from doing that one, you know, major testing day, and and try and sort of have it as part of the program per se. How how do you fit it in and and use it in your periodization? I generally agree with you. So I, I, um, I have this idea. I don't know. If it's originally mine, but I, I think a, a lot of people 
came to the same conclusion. I just call it the embedded testing. So embedded testing is that pretty much the testing without testing, you're trying to test, uh, actually collect the data as much as you can from, from the training practices. So rather than having a designated days to perform uh, testing sessions, we uh, the embedded, embedded testing idea uh, calls for trying to get as much information from from training practices so just kind of put it under the under the surface so it's like um, people are not being actually aware of they are being tested and I think that's it could be a little bit more ecologically valid um, you know some athletes freak out when they're tested and so forth but again some they need to kind of perform on a, on a given day so most of them are uh, used used to it but um, the idea is also saving time so if you have a designated day for testing or multiple days for testing you just lose time. So um, the idea of behind the embedded testing is to try to collect as much information you can from the training practices. The only problem is this, uh, it's the idea. So I'll give you an example. So imagine you want to estimate the maximum velocity of the Ferrari. Ideally, you want to test it on a straight line. So like something that can the, it's not constraining the car, uh, so you, you can you can estimate the the maximum velocity. And uh, the other option would be to kind of have a you know certain distance, for example, from your home to work, and then you kind of you know test how much it takes to 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 get there. So um, the, the the numbers you're gonna get will will depend on the traffic. So you're gonna depend depend on the traffic, depend on the you know. Con- congestion and on uh, traffic congestion and uh, light and all, all this stuff. Um, so he, here's the kind of dichotomy. So some of the stuff in, in practices will will limit the, the, the realization of the potential. So in this case, the, the car maximum speed will be limited by a traffic, right? So quite similar in a training. Um, so now we have this dichotomy of, you know, are we are we actually testing the underlying potential of the athlete or what's being manifested in a training practices. So I would say it's kind of tricky and we always need to keep this dichotomy in mind. But uh, for example, if you are testing, uh, say, maximum sprinting speed, ideally you want to test with uh, timing gates or you want to test with um, uh, truck or specialized equipment on a designated day when you have a maximum or a certain distance for for running or flying sprints or whatever. But now we have Pretty, I would, I would say, without going into a reliability and measurement error of the GPS devices, we can get a glimpse into what might be the athlete uh, maximum speed or maximum velocity from training and game data, GPS training data. So we can find, like, we can search for from um, GPS data, for example, last seven days or last one month, rolling, and try to find the fastest, say, two-second period. So again, if you remember the, the car analogy, um, it can depend on the on the game or game scenario or the training scenarios to kind of conclude that this is the actual potential. But again, it can give us some some type of a glimpse of you know what's happening across the time if if the athlete is actually manifesting uh, improved performance. Again, assuming that that you know the um, the game drills and 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 the training actually allows or doesn't uh, constrain that manifestation of the maximum velocity. So it, it can be expanded to another, say, uh, physical traits or physical constructs 
such as uh, maximum aerobic speed. So you can maybe using a GPS stuff, you can you can find maybe the the, the toughest five minute period, like where the athletes cover the most distance, and you can you can kind of plot that across time. So let's say we we use like a, a search period of like a last period in a game or in a or in a training sessions, and if you plot that. Uh, we can get some type of the glimpse into, you know, what's happening across across time. So is this manifestation increasing or decreasing or something like that? So I'm I'm not saying that we can actually ditch out completely testing, uh, but maybe we can uh, maybe we can kind of supplement or complement the testing data with with this with this type of the embedded testing. But again, we just need to keep in mind this the uh, the car analogy. If that's if this makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. Like working in in uh, rugby and football and, and Aussie rules, you have it. There's so many different stresses. You know, where it's technical, tactical, and 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 the S and C program. You've got to take all those into account in in any type of um, whether it is out and out testing or whether it is GPS data from a game or training. Um, so for example, for example, to to kind of continue on on this one. Um, so another option will be so if uh, would be rather than having say for example the, the 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 sprint test or maximum sprinting test or 40 meter dash or 20 meter dash rather than having like a designated day saying okay today we're going to test uh, why don't we so we are still training speed speed sessions and we're going to have speed sessions you know multiple times a week why not collect the data during those sprint session so you know you, you don't call it testing you just call it monitoring let's see you know what's your fastest time and even you know providing this type of feedback can i would say can have a positive and negative effects the positive effect would be you know you can increase com- competition between the athletes that could be beneficial in terms of uh uh you know them competing and and uh, manifesting higher perform acute performance and hence maybe having a, a better a chronic effect but it can also maybe create um, um, a stress for the metrics or something like that uh, to, to go uh, go those lines. So um, rather than having like this, you know, estimating the car in a in a in a in an urban jungle, so estimate the maximum speed from a game data. Uh, we can actually help in constraining the, the the search and say like we're gonna we're gonna try to estimate the maximum speed from the speed sessions, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and maybe collect the data during the speed sessions rather than having a designated testing day. So this this can work also for other components as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I think what you're saying there about how it can be a negative, I, I'd say a good example is when using velocity-based training, for example, um, obviously you get that competition and you've got that number for them to chase, so it should increase their performance. But sometimes when they're chasing that number, their technique goes out the window. So that's something you, you also need to be um, aware of and, and make sure that they're performing it well and producing you know those high outputs um, is that the type of thing you you mean there oh yeah yeah so yeah. Uh, I, I think also depends on the context so uh, for example for um, let's call it open end open end uh, ballistic exercise so by, by open end I mean the the jump or a throw or something like that yeah. where the bar doesn't need to reach a certain height, so as which could be which can be uh, applied to say Olympic lifting. So 
I'm not a big fan of using a lot of this stuff on uh, Olympic lifting. Yeah. Um, and maybe also on a, on a you know grinding movement such as you know squat, deadlift, and, and so forth. But if, if we provide that, say a peak velocity or mean velocity for uh, ballistic movements, for example, like a hex bar jump or you know bench bench throw or something like that, um, I think we are less likely to screw up the technique. Um, uh, and 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 this feedback could be could be useful. Where, for example, in uh, Olympic lifting, if you give a say, if you're doing a hand cleans uh, or power hand cleans, or you need to catch the barbell in a certain uh, position, for example, a half squat or something like that, and if you provide the say a peak velocity or mean velocity metric, and and you create a competition, uh, we might run the risk of people doing a muscle clean. So <laughs> something like that, just just screwing up the technique so the the numbers could be rigged so or improved so we always with all the metrics there you know comes the the benefit and and uh, and the drawbacks with with all the metrics so i i think it's called a hawthorne effect or something like that so you know every time you measure something people you, you create incentive and that incentive can actually be uh, opposite of what you actually expected so i think it's called a hawthorne effect okay. just you know, can't can remember exactly yeah. No. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely something to be aware of when you're using, using the whether it's velocity-based training or speed metrics. Um, you you touched on maximal aerobic speed there, and something I wanted to ask you about because I think I read I think it was your periodization for soccer uh, ebook many many years ago, um, and you had really good progressions of how you used you know various sort of running techniques or modalities, um, including uh, MAS. Um, I was just wondering if. if if you could talk about how you kind of program your running condition and if, if it's changed from, from what you did back then over the years? Uh, I think it, it, it is. Uh, but before I, before I even jump to that, um, um, some people kind of prefer to do MAS sprinting and some, or actually MAS conditioning and some dislike them and so forth. But um, I think MAS is just, a, just like a number that we are using to prescribe. You know, a zoo of the intervals, um, which is a topic of my of, of my uh, book, the HIT manual. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's like it's like saying, for example, if I say I don't like MAS intervals, and you know, it's like it, it's similar to saying I don't like using one RMs in a in a in a in a gym. So MAS are just a number that we use to anchor some of the intensities. I I I, I look at it as a as a prescriptive tool rather than descriptive or like a very physiological tool. It's something to kind of help individualize the HIT uh, uh, running drills, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, and, and those drills could be numerous. Uh, my current position when it comes to conditioning for uh, team sports nowadays, I think kind of changed over the years, but uh, not much, um, is that I, I like to, oh, even for most sports, I like to do it specifically, like using a specific drills. In this case, for example, in you know, a soccer could be small side games, large and medium-sided games but but on top of that I would I would love to kind of uh, uh, complement the specific drills with with some of the some of the intervals and we can uh, we can approach this with you know from different angles so if you're having a GPS stuff GPS data uh, you can kind of complement or as we used to call it top up the the distance or top up the certain velocity bands with the 
let's call it the in a quotation mark the dry condition using HAT uh, running tempo running or whatever or we can just make sure like for example if 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 the if you're playing on a small side of games particularly in soccer where you're gonna have a lot of you know side to side movement start and stop movement and less kind of you know longer distance straight ahead running uh, then we can kind of complement that with with uh, conditioning drills that are more straight line and the opposite when you when we are focusing for example in a large sided games where you're going to have more straight ahead runnings and less side to side movements so the conditioning can be complement to that uh, and having like more you know shuff, shuttles and side to side stuff and and so forth so again I, I see it as a tool to kind of complement the the most specific stuff in in um, in a sport yeah no definitely I, I think like you said, uh, an athlete, whether it's a football player, a rugby player, there's certain things they need to be able to perform. Um, so if they're not getting some of that from their sport-specific training, um, you've got to add in those extra bits. And obviously, there's benefits of getting, you know, sometimes direct high-intensity uh, stimulus from those. So yeah, it's kind of looking at what's covered off by your your rugby training or your football soccer training, in your case, and then and then adding adding to it with with your own you know specific conditioning stuff so that's a really good point now this is the question um we ask all the guests it's um what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to strength and condition you, you don't have to be specific about uh rugby players but maybe just your your athletes you've worked with what's the biggest mistake they make in terms of strength and conditioning Ooh, uh <laughs> should i should i focus on soccer or try to be more general, general. Um, up to up to you up to you what what kind of what's the first thing that sort of uh, jumps at you? Uh, it's a tricky question. Um, well, f- for a soccer, um, it's it's tricky. Like you know, you, you know, it, the the attitude toward the strength conditioning depends on a, pretty much on the country uh, or a region. So. Um, Say European soccer, like particularly Italian and Spanish, uh, they prefer to do everything with the ball. If that makes sense, yeah. which which I don't mind. Like people are fantastically fit and and playing. Uh, and then you, we might have American system, the college system that might have a longer preseason and shorter in season, where things are more like a chopped up in in terms of like a very sequential or like maybe doing a lot of gym work without any technical work and then. And then switching to kind of only playing and not doing any particular uh, conditioning or or strength conditioning work. Um, so I, again, it depends on the sport and depends on a, on a region. Uh, but major mistake, I think we are we are doing better with the internet and everything. People are are uh, still um, learning, but I, I think we need to kind of juggle with two extremes. And one is thinking that we can do everything with the uh, more specific drills. And and the other one would be that we do need to kind of do everything with with the general drill. So I think both sides are correct. And as a coaches, we need to figure out what what works, particularly from a cultural standpoint and at a particular club. So you know, I would still prefer some some type of a lifting year round, um, not necessary for a direct effects on on um, on a game performance or training performance but also from a, I would call it a second order effects 
by avoiding the potential injuries and so forth. Mm. Um, I I think that what we what we make mistake also in strength conditioning is to kind of apply, and this is like a long old old story. Everybody knows this um, is that we try to apply a models uh, from uh, particularly when it comes to strength training from a, a strength specialist to to strength generalists such as you know team sport players. So. that's similar or that's being used with a strength specialist when working with a with a you know um, strength generalist um, one example could be uh, maybe focusing on a particular day uh, on a particular um, strength session so, so for example if you have a, a, a team um, playing in season uh, we usually have a, a designated day where team strength session might be performed and what I notice is that you know sometimes the coach will skip this session. Sometimes that certain athletes will skip this session, and it's pretty much similar to putting all the eggs in one basket, in, in like all the strength training load in a in a given day. So if someone misses that day, the next session will be in you know uh, seven days, and the previous one in seven days. So we're gonna have like 15 days between two gym sessions, mm-hmm. and if this happens in the middle of the in season. Uh, we are more we're going to have more proclivity to experiencing negative side effects such as you know heavy legs or soreness so i think approaching planning from uh, i would i would say a little, not optimality trying to find the optimal day for a given session but more from like a robust approach in making sure that if certain changes happen to a training program the the program and the effects will still have uh as, as some type of a benefit or some type of a protection um from from changes and again changes could be changes can happen in team sports from you know multiple multiple sources like you know maybe changing the, the coach but that would be like really extreme one uh, skipping a session you know getting injured getting some twerk or t- tweak i don't know how you call it in in when, when you get a punch in a muscle uh getting sick you know losing a game and then coach wants to kind of doesn't want to focus on on any lifting and so forth so uh, I would say the major error would be to kind of just copy paste the programs from strength specialists to strength generalists. Yeah, no, definitely. I think I think you know it's still a, a young industry, and you had a lot of people coming into it from their own background, whether it's weightlifting, powerlifting, and trying to bring all, all that across and just going right. That's how you get stronger, but it's not designed for sport. And, and I think that well, I know that's that's definitely changing. You get a natural sports specialists you know who are trying to improve the whole you know the whole physical spectrum so um it's improving but yes you know you can still fall back into your you know your background whether it's powerlifting or weightlifting and and there's other examples as well but yeah definitely a good point now uh talking specifically about strength training um and you've used a term in the past that I, i like to use myself and i don't think people consider it in team sports i think it's very important it's minimum effective dose um do you want to kind of touch on what you mean by that Mm-hmm. Uh, can, can you repeat I lost you for a second oh like, sorry yeah just, just um, you well, talked about minimum effective dose in strength training um, I wonder if you could touch on, on what you mean by that oh well that that's the term that comes from uh, medicine actually from uh, epidemiology um, if, if memory serves me well so that's the minimal dose that, that creates a beneficial effect 
So, or a minimal beneficial effects. And for, in a theory, it's really clear cut what it means, but in practice it's really tricky um, because the, the effect we're gonna get uh, depends on a, a, a lot of things. So, you know, from mostly from a, a current state, like the context and the current state that the athlete's in. So, for example, if you if if define a dose like a tonnage or distance covered and, and things like that, so theoretically you can say that a certain uh, dosage or let's say like number of lift, lifts in a week, so let's say like um, uh, you need 20 lifts over 80% of 1RM to, imp- to have like a minimal effect. Uh, but that depends on, you know, frequency, like how that 20 lifts are distributed in a week. So are they in a single day? Uh, so that would be like a very concentrated dose or are they distributed across, you know, seven days? Um, or, or, or it could be like uh, if, if the athlete is uh, sleeping well, having a, a good streak in a game performance or having a shitty streak in a game performance. So this idea of the dose being really fixed to a certain level, it's flawed because it's really hard to pinpoint to exact numbers. But I think the idea is sound, the application is tricky. So I would say the idea is rather, I would say like we should move from from minimum effective dose idea, which is sound in theory, to something that's, which I presented in a new book. Um, it, it sounds a little bit metaphysical, but uh, using a hero's journey. Something like that, uh, in terms of um, doing something that's that's doable, uh, that doesn't affect other sport practices. In terms of you know, doesn't create a heavy legs. So for example, if you're a combat athlete, um, um, a lifting session shouldn't make you uh, suffer on your technical session because of the heavy arms or heavy legs. If you're sparring or doing you know upper body or lower body punching slash kicking, so it. Uh, I, I call this idea the push versus pull. So if you're familiar with the dungeon concept of the bus bench and a park bench, it's quite similar. Yeah. So the, the, the pushing programs are the programs that try to kind of squeak out maximum amount of adaptation. They are really precise uh, in terms of prescription. Uh, the progression steps are really precise. So you're trying really, really squeeze, or you're pushing the adaptation. And I think this works for particularly for a strength specialist, which brings me back to the, the previous question we had. So this can work for a strength specialist for a certain amount of time. You cannot do this like a year around. So you probably have like a, a peaking period for like a month or two, maybe once or twice a year, and that's it. So the push programs work, but they work short. And the and pulling programs are more like slow cooking. So. They are more like okay, we're gonna adapt. To, we're gonna adapt the progression to the adaptation scene. So it's really hard to pinpoint what these exactly mean in terms of dose, in terms of prescription, in terms in terms of uh, expectations from training. But conceptually, they are sound. Like I call it a phenomenologically. So it's really hard to to kind of pinpoint to exact which variable represent the pushing or pulling. Is it volume? Is it Intensity is it you know proximity to failure, things like that. But these kind of overspan these these uh, redu- reductionistic metrics. So if I, I probably you, you understand it from an intuitive level. So the the pulling program will be you know slowly cooking, adapting 
uh, taking it easy when you don't feel really well. Uh, so kind of flirting, let's call it a flirting with the with the comfort zone. So if you have a comfort zone and then you have like a pushing zone, you're kind of flirting. The comfort zone, but going outside to a to a you know let's call it a pushing zone. With the pushing programs on the other on the other on the other side, you're you're really outside of the of the comfort zone. So I think that the idea from the minimum effective dose uh, should be kind of switched to calling it the pulling or versus pushing programs. If this makes sense, let let me know if if this sounds uh, understandable. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely makes sense. So yeah, uh, the, this brings me to the, this idea of using a, a strength specialist programs to strength generalist. Yeah. So the strength specialist program would be more leaning towards the pushing side in terms of prescription. So you might have like a exact percentages, um, exact number of reps, and an exact prescription that someone needs to follow, and which is good for certain periods of time, for off season or something like that. But in season or a longer prep, prep, preparatory period in, in uh, team sports, um, you never know how, how someone might come to training. So these should be kind of adapted to to suit the I would say the the changing the training training potential of the of the team sport athletes. So you know someone might might have like a more contacts in a rugby training session, and yeah. they might have a hard time squatting and, and things like that. So the prescription is to be adapted as well. So in this in this case, the prescription is more loose, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it, it can hit, rather than giving like exact number or exact percentage of one RM or load on the barbell, it can prescribe with the, with a buffer or like a zone. So that will be more leaning on a, on a pulling side. Yeah. So over over the time, you're gonna increase the one RM used for prescribing. So you, over over time, you're gonna make sure that there's a progressive overload happening, but on a mini levels. You're gonna allow more um, more wiggle room for the athletes, and I think that's could be one of the applications of this pushing versus pulling, particularly on the prescript, prescriptiveness level. And this is the topic I heavily explained in the in the upcoming book. Actually, the the, the volume one is already available on on the website. Uh, it it sounds like a little bit metaphysical uh, in, in terms of like you know I've been. I've been eating like a magic mushrooms or something, but uh, it, I think it's quite similar from a. It's understandable from an intuitive level. Like what what do you expectations of the program? Uh, how hard are you pushing and squeezing the adaptation and things like that? So, it can mean multiple things, and and um, I just explained from from a prescriptiveness uh, perspective how these two concepts could be could be applied. Yeah, no, I, I really like that approach. I, I think the key thing, as you said, you know, for a start, it shouldn't take away from the, the sport practice. Obviously, that, that's the priority. And, it, um, yeah, going back to the previous question, um, it's I think I think it's often a, a mistake young coaches make because they want to see, you know, good results and they want to get their athletes to improve and, and almost prove prove their worth. They use these um, pushing programs, as you use the term, to, to get those results but it takes away from um from their sport practice or puts them at, at risk of injury or you know at, at the worst um worst instance so yeah it's definitely um a really good point and and good good ways of looking at it you can use your pushing during the off season and maybe start a pre-season but then you know you have to have a, a almost pull back approach 
um, moving into end of pre-season as games come in and, and into the season as well. Um, yeah, exactly. Now, so touching on that in terms of young young coaches, what another question we, we ask all the podcast guests is what advice would you give to an upcoming strength coach? Um, I would say get a mentor. Um, that would be the best advice. Uh, get someone more experienced than you that, that you trust and someone that trusts you to experiment and and kind of help you, guide you through the process. Uh, I wasn't that lucky to have a uh, a mentor, but um, nowadays with with the internet, you have you have access to uh, to coaches. Like when when I was when I was starting, uh, most of us were members of the Char- late Charlie Francis Forum, and yeah. Charlie and more experienced coaches were there, and you know we we we, we were able to ask. You know all sort of questions and have have them answered, uh, which was really helpful. So, which was really helpful uh, in, in in learning. Uh, but I I think ideally the young coach should have some type of a, a mentor, um, like a godfather, that he can actually call and ask, and you know help him planning, maybe observe, uh, giving feedback and and so forth. I think that that can speed up the process. Uh, much better um, and and besides now we have all these um, like I, I think we have over let's call it the, uh, the too much uh, educational stuff on, on the internet a lot of courses like shitload of courses um, and shitload of licenses and um, all the all, like different license different specialization courses and so forth so someone can be like really paralyzed in terms of you know what what should one what should course should be taken and, and so forth so having um, someone more experienced someone more um, trying to squeeze out the noise from the signal and maybe helping a young coach kind of stay on the track without getting too much distracted with with the noise with all these tools with all the you know different try to make him within the, I would say, the, the signal or the best practices and um, help him in, in not becoming too obsessive or, uh, or paralyzed by the analysis or the, let's call it the fear of missing out uh, or like trying to, to, to learn from all these different courses, which is fine, but, you know, there's abundance of, of these courses and people can get um, paralyzed in terms of like, I need to know all this stuff and most of it, you don't. So, someone who who trims this, can kind of prune it, or or trim trim this idea of that you need to kind of know everything. So, I guess that would be that would be my major suggestion. Another other would be to uh, to try to learn from other sources. Like, don't try to be too specialist. Like, uh, we can learn, we can still learn from a lot of other non-related non related domains. So try to become a generalist rather than a specialist. So, uh, for example, that might also mean learning other fields. And I found the most interesting fields like a complexity science, learning the basic statistics, basic, you know, what's the evidence, the probability stuff. Um, it can it can help your reasoning. So it, it can it can enrich your mental power by giving you more mental models that you can use to kind of make solutions to your problems um, so I think that would be 
another another suggestion. So to sum it up would be a mentor and don't become specialists. Try to you know try to become generalist by learning from other domains as well. Yeah, awesome advice there. Um, last question. I know we're, we're running a little bit short on time, so um, just wanted to get your uh, opinion on exercise selection. Um, I know you've written about it in the past, and um, I've got my own ideas on it, and just wanted to see what your sort of process was for exercise selection. Um, I'm, I'm actually I'm trying to over the next few weeks or days. I'm trying to uh, write the third volume actually or the second volume in a paperback of the of the book upcoming book the strength training a manual and one of the one of the, um, the 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 technique or the models i suggested there is called i call it the slot method not slot but slot <laughs> uh and, and it's really really i would say really practical in terms of um uh, the, the the training slot. So when you when you plan training, uh, we create these slots, which would be like a bottom up approach to planning, um, and we we want to populate those slots. Usually, you know, for example, if you're having a, a whole body session in in terms of a gym, you you consider those major movement patterns as as slots you need to populate in a training. So for example, it could be. Um, lower body squat hinge upper body push and pull so that that's four and you already have like a four slots in a, in a training and are there like a core or a ballistic and that's like six slots that you need to populate so i would say from from um from this slot perspective uh you start by defining uh the major let's call it the major um uh, slots or qualities uh that 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 you deem important for a given sport um, so for example sometimes you don't even know what's important when you start so I'll give you an example of training the combat athletes um, I usually start with you know basic movement patterns and I address them in a training session so as I mentioned like I create a slots in a when I plan I create a slots so again slots could be you know upper lower session it could be total session so that gives you the, the kind of a slots to populate so I, the, the, the major classification I use is the you know difference between the grinding movements and the ballistic movements, um, and then each can have uh, the subcategories of, um, of you know usually the, the movement patterns. So it could be the, as I mentioned before the squat, hinge, push, pull, carry, core, things like that. So you kind of create those slots in a program. But as you as you start working with someone, for, for example, a new sport or a new athlete. Uh, you also want to have like this the other category so that's all the other you know it's like a it, it's the bottom drawer uh, type of a category where you put everything that you don't know where where it belongs so I'll give you an example from a combat sports uh, I did notice that most of the combat athletes uh, complain about the neck so that's quite similar in the rugby I guess the neck issues the neck strength so then you know from from that other category you figure out that you know the the bunch of the exercise that you kind of started using are belonging to the neck category so this category becomes your new slot in a uh, actually new slot in the in a training right so uh, you kind of discover as you go so now we might have uh, you know push pull squat hinge and neck because you know it, it seems to be uh, important enough to 
to have a designated slot in a, in a, in a training program. So I don't know if this answers your question, but I'm going to expand it a little bit more. And this is something that I'm kind of flirting around a little bit lately, trying to create like a framework around it. And I promise I'm going to develop it a little bit further. Um, so I, ideally, you know, as I mentioned before, I, I tend to start, I tend um, and then I, I create the slots in a training, in a training program that, um, that these movement patterns should be should be prescribed inside the training program, and then as you go, you, you also kind of leave leave some room for for something that's that's going to be discovered, if that makes sense. Yeah, and no, I think it's a good system. <clears throat> like I say, you've got a a kind of set framework, but you've got the ability to you know adapt it. And as like you said, you know, experience in different sports, and you see that other other things need to be added in, like the network. Um, you, you kind of. Yeah adapt it as, as you go through so that's, that's really and there's good. one more uh, there's one more thing I, I failed to mention is that um, uh, this tend, this tends to work very nicely when you have small number of athletes but uh, when it when when it comes to this slot method you also need to take into account the constraints of the gym particularly when you have multiple athletes in the gym so uh, these slots don't necessarily need to be movement patterns so again, it could be movement patterns from a, from a strength generalist, or it could be, um, you know, categories of the uh, uh, exercise uh, specificity. So, for example, for for a strength specialist, it could be uh, specific bench press movement, specific deadlift movement, you know, general strength movement, general bench press movement, general deadlift movement, and so forth. So, how you classify uh, depends on your context, depends on your on on who you are working with. So, there's no objective way to classify exercises it depends on you know who's looking at the exercise or or, or depends on how you plan to use them um, and and the third approach would be to kind of uh, keep in mind the um, facility constraints particularly when you work with a lot of athletes so for example usually we, we we have like a power unit or power station that's like a squat rack station where you can do one exercise um, and then uh, you might have, a, say, a dumbbell dumbbell station, and maybe have like a, a ground mobility station, something like that. So these could be your training slots in a training program because you need to kind of organize athletes around those spots in the gym. Yeah. So you might have, okay, the slot number one is a, a squat rack. Uh, slot number two is a dumbbell station. Uh, slot number three is a, um, is a ground mobility. And uh, slot number four is like a core something like that so uh, the, the slot mm, slot framework allows for um, allows for multiple kind of perspectives in you know what what defines the slot and uh, you know in this in this regard those are like uh, stations in the gym and this allows for like a easier organization of a, a lot of athletes in, in a one particular smaller confined space so you can you can for example in a in a one single, in a once, you can have these four slots, um, and on each on each slot you can have, you know, you can you can make sure that all the major movement patterns are hit inside the inside the one session. Again, depends on your philosophy or whatever, um, and then repeat it two times. So we might have like a circuit number one. So it, this could be on a squat rack, could be a squat could be uh, you know upper body press with the dumbbell station you can have some you know mobility exercise on the mat and then you know side bridge or something so that will be the circuit number one 
and you know, the second circuit or second four slots could also involve these stations in the gym. But you know, in the in a squat rod, you can move the bench in, and you can do like an incline bench press. Uh, the dumbbells uh, station can now have like a Romanian single leg Romanian deadlift. The uh, the ground mobilities could be could be used to to do some neck work, uh, and then you know the core could be like a like a landmine twist or something like that. So the the slot method is really bottom up approach to kind of prescribing training rather than having like a ideal theoretical movement patterns or theoretical qualities that you need to you you want to hit. So it, it can it can adjust to to the the facility constraints or what have you. Not sure if this makes sense. I'm no no it does I'm, make I'm sense. Expand it. Yeah it does make sense and yeah I think when you when you're working in sport you kind of you soon figure out that it's a it's a balance between the physiological and the logistical isn't it it's um it's exactly. finding stuff that works in your environment so no that's really good advice um so lastly Mladen, thanks very much for your time uh just last question where can people learn more about yourself so i have a website from 2010 complementarytraining.net or complementarytraining.com um and at the Twitter, I'm physical underscore prep, so physical prep. Uh, same thing for uh, Instagram, which is more personal, I would say. Uh, so these are pretty much three, three uh, major uh, sources where I kind of post. Also the Facebook page, uh, complementary training. Um, we also post a lot of uh, the job ads, um, and. Um, we're trying to kind of aggregate all the job positions that, that are currently available in the in, uh, strength conditioning um, and um, uh, rehab. So, yeah, these, these are pretty much uh, three, that the Twitter, Facebook page, and the complementarytraining.net uh, website. I, I'm currently working on publishing my second book called the Strength Training Manual, the volume one uh, electronic version is already available, and we're going to follow up in a in a month. three, and finally, kind of publish it as a as a paperback edition, which should be available, I think, before January two thousand twenty. Uh, so that's that's pretty much it. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, we will of course share the links um, of all those in the show notes, and let us know when that when that volume three is is out, and we'll um, we'll give you a shout out on our social media as well. But Mladen, lastly, thank you very much for your time. Um, some some great uh, insight into the work you do, and um, yeah, thank you, and all the best for the future. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Cheers. So another great podcast. Thank you, Mladen, for taking the time to talk to us. Tons of great take-home points. And please check Mladen out at Complementary Training. Um, uh, yeah, he's got loads of books and content coming out by the sounds of it, so uh, keep checking that out. And in the meantime, keep checking us out at rugbyrenegade.com and on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, recently released the Fast Rugby book, um, which a few people have been asking for, so hopefully uh, that'll help you get faster. And, uh, of course, subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, whatever you use to listen to podcasts. And of course, give us a five-star review and tune in for next time. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at rugbyrenegade.com. Rugby Renegade, building machines.